are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. If you're a frequent listener or if you're new here, typically the women and occasionally men that I bring onto this podcast are either chief innovation officers or founders or product design technology leaders in their respective fields. If you've ever heard of Emmy Nightfield before, you may likely have read her op-ed in the New York Times about how she experienced sexual harassment at Google and the aftermath of that. This would make her a not-so-typical guest of mine, but it was so important for me to bring her onto the podcast because that story exemplifies such a real and unique challenge for women in the workplace today. And of course, so much has been documented about harassment in the Me Too movement, but there's still so much gray that isn't discussed. Like, how do you go on once you report something like that? What are the rules of the game, and what does advancement look like in that same company where you reported the harassment? And Emmy's story is fascinating in that she took her experience and pivoted and is now an innovator in her own right in a different way as a writer. And so this conversation is also about what it means to go from being an innovator through the lens of a Fortune 500 company and then being recognized as one on your own accord with no big brand attached to your innovation. So before I hand over the conversation to Emmy, I'd like to say thank you for listening to this podcast and supporting it and being there for all of the different facets of its growth, whether it is the different type of guests we bring on here or changes with the format and all of that good stuff. Hi, Emmy. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. It's so great to be here. So, so great to have you. For those that don't know, which would be everyone listening, the backstory of how we connected is that we both spoke at Harvard earlier this year in February at the Women in Tech Conference, which was honestly such an inspiring event. I recognized you in your story from the New York Times. Uh, you penned the op-ed titled, After Working at Google, I Will Never Let Myself Love a Job Again. And if you're a listener and you haven't read the piece yet, I highly encourage you to check it out. But fast forward to today, you went from being an engineer in both Google and then Facebook to being a full-time writer, discussing your former experiences, your thoughts on the workplace, and the challenges of navigating it. So talk to me about how you made the decision to leave your role at Facebook and then pursue writing full-time, because that's such a change. Yeah, I was writing pretty seriously since I left college. I graduated in 2015. And then in November of 2015, when I was a new graduate engineer at Google, I took this Googler-led goal-setting workshop. Mm -hmm. And it was just a bunch of us sitting around in a room. And we talked about what our goals were and made plans for how to achieve them. And my goal was like, I'm going to write a book. And that day I went home and I started writing it and I never stopped. And so for a lot of people who have a passion, I was going through this process at a certain point of like, when do I quit my day job? Like, when do I quit my day job? And I think if I had stayed at Google, 
things there were very sustainable for me to be able to wake up right in the morning between like 7 and 10 a.m. and then go into the office, do a day's work, work out, go home, do it all again. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately, like my, my life at Google kind of fell apart as I've written about, after I reported someone for harassment and went through an HR investigation. And so I ended up getting a new job at Facebook. But when I was negotiating it, I negotiated nine and a half months off between jobs. Mm -hmm. So I already knew like, okay, I've signed the offer. Like I know what my salary is going to be, but I have this time when I can write full time. Wow. Yeah. And I, when I'm talking to other people who are thinking about making this career change, I really encourage them, do it in addition to your day job, Mm -hmm. if you can. And then if you can swing this longer period of time, it's a really good trial run. And I really expected, like, I'm going to finish this book, I'm going to get it out of my system, and then I'm going to be so happy to go back to, to software engineering. But I found I actually loved writing all day. And after, like, a few years of it, I had worked my way up to being able to sit in the chair for six or eight hours a day and, like, put the words down. So going to Facebook was actually really painful. And um, unlike Google, I I really hated it there. Um, It was not the best fit for me. And so while I was at Facebook, I wrote the op-ed about working at Google and the harassment and this HR investigation. And it was also a piece about my relationship to my job. Mm-hmm. And it the piece went very viral. And I got all of these messages from thousands of people telling me their stories about what work meant to them. And it really forced me to think about my relationship to my profession, to software engineering and to writing. And what was I getting out of it? Why was I staying in engineering? And what role was work going to play in my life? And so that experience of publishing the op-ed really led me to deciding to take the leap and write full-time. I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying that the content I put out there is often interviewing people and just like informative and educational, and you really put yourself and your traumatic experience out there. So that's just a PSA before I'm about to ask my question. But as you wrote the article and you put it out there, um, when you were at Facebook, outside of figuring out like whether you wanted to be a software engineer full-time or you wanted to be a full-time writer... How did you grapple with how people responded to the fact that you were putting content out there and making a name for yourself outside of, you know, your day job, especially in that way? That's such a great question. I had a little bit of a unique experience where my first pieces that came out came out during that gap between Google and Facebook. And so I had former colleagues from Google who were really supportive of me Mm -hmm. and were just like my absolute cheerleaders. But I didn't have to go into the office and be like, look, I published this essay about the worst thing that ever happened to me. Totally. When I was at Facebook, my essay happened to be published the same week that my husband's grandmother died. Oh my God. And so, I mean, I'm very grateful Facebook had amazing bereavement leave. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the piece came out, we were taking this leave together, my husband and I, who also worked at Facebook. And then I came back and it was very strange because HR had put a meeting on my calendar. They were like, just checking in, you know, we're just going to check in with you every few weeks for the rest of your time here. 
to see how everything's going for you. And it it was like very kindly worded. Like we want to make sure that this isn't happening to you at Facebook, which I absolutely believe totally. that they did want to make sure of that. Right. But also I felt a little bit like I put a target on my back. For sure. Because you also put put this story about yourself because you wanted to share the story and it was important for the world to know, but that doesn't mean that you want your entire identity and in the workplace, your entire existence to be basically focused on that. Absolutely. Yeah. But I will, I will say it, it has been generally a lot better than I expected where I think at first, especially if you're writing about some of the topics I'm writing about, like I was in foster care as a teenager. I, dealt with neglect and abuse and sexual assaults. At first, it was so hard to put those things out there. And one of my biggest fears really was, are my coworkers going to read this? And the truth is they did. They did read it. But over time, I, I did get more used to it. And I think that there were certain places and teams and people that were really on board with, with having somebody who has this side career and places that weren't. Like when I was interviewing at Dropbox, the recruiter was like so enthusiastic. He was like, I love your writing. You know, it's great. And so that that might have been a, a more welcoming space, like just gauging from that reaction. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I would definitely tell my younger self, like, hey, pay attention to that. When you're thinking about what kind of career is sustainable with doing personal writing. And hindsight vision is twenty twenty. but do you think there's a world in which you could have kind of continued doing both and kind of scratching both the software engineering side of your passions as well as being a writer? Absolutely. I just don't think there are enough hours in the day. Yeah. Like, yeah. I actually think about it all the time. Should I go get another tech day job? Because there's so many things I miss about it. Like, I mm-hmm. miss having colleagues. I miss doing engineering and also, my therapist is like, hey, you're at capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like, I don't need to sign up for more activities. <laughs> exactly. So I yeah, kind of feel yeah. like it's like that whole thing of like, sacrifice is trading something good for something better. I do I do feel that way a little bit with, with a career in engineering. Um, and whenever I meet people who are in these day jobs where it's like, kind of boring, maybe you're coasting, but it gives them so much time and space and emotional energy to work on what they really love. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, you do not have to always push a hundred percent in your lucrative career. Like it is okay to take, to take that space for yourself and use that because that's everybody's dream to have a job like that. Exactly, exactly. And and that, that goes back to like, what are your KPIs? And I, I'll just acknowledge that me saying like, why don't you do both is what it sounds like. I'm not saying that. But I think that's also my toxic behaviors with somebody who has five side hustles and am perpetually exhausted, you know, so I definitely I think you made the right decision for you. <laughs> But to the to the conversation about some of these careers, when you talk about this lucrative, successful career, it often feels like a hamster wheel. And I can say we often get so attached to our title or our company as a part of who 
we are and our identity. I'll personally say I struggle with that so much. And I always think about like, if all of this went away for whatever reason, choice or no choice, how would I think about my identity and who I am? And so today you work for yourself and you aren't affiliated with anyone but yourself. How do you think about your identity and work today? And how has that transition been? I'm so happy you asked me this question. After I quit Facebook, but before my book Acceptance came out about 18 months later, I went through a pretty difficult period of reevaluating my identity because I, you know, I went to Harvard. I am affiliated with a lot of people who went to Ivy League schools who still work at these like hot startups or fang companies. And I remember going to a party and telling people like, I'm a writer and just having them kind of walk away from me Mm. and be like, you are not somebody important. You are not who we want to talk to. And I, it was a real drop in status that I think I anticipated and mentally like added into my calculation, but it was really painful and really really hard to realize like, oh, some of these people who I thought really liked me for me, that it was that kind of professional aura of success. And then it was also wild to see like after publishing a book, how then my status rose again. Right. Because you had like a publisher affiliated with you as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so for better or for worse, right now, writing and the creative industries are so much about branding And I feel this urge to form my identity around some sort of brand. Mm -hmm. I think that that's also not the healthiest either. And so what I'm really striving to do is think about, okay, what is really important to me? What are the issues that are most important to me? And to replace that part of my identity that's driven by a big name And instead swap that out for like, I'm somebody who cares deeply about economic inequality and educational inequity. And my work centers around that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I often think that we also use these brands or companies to kind of validate that we are legit. And Mm. to to the point that you're making around, like, I want to be defined by the actual work that I do. I would like to believe that just the work that you do should speak for itself. And to be clear, like I didn't invite you on this podcast because you went to Harvard or because you worked at Google or Facebook. Of course, yes, I learned from you from the New York Times, which you can argue is another brand. But ultimately, I think it's really important to have conversations about the work and and strip all of the noise. But I'm a victim of the system. Like I also went to an Ivy League school and I also work at a Fortune 10 company. So I think there's a lot more to it and it's really not black and white. Absolutely. I I feel like I'm going through this process of deprogramming myself. I'm just turned 30. I'm 30. Another title. (laughs) I know I'm 30. (laughs) But but it's been interesting to go back and see like, okay, what did I learn in college? Mm -hmm. And what were these messages that I was getting from big institutions that I identified with that I loved, and some of which ultimately burned me to a crisp? Mm hmm. And how do I replace those lessons with things that are healthier and less hierarchical and often more complicated and harder to actually put into practice? 
when we also talk about the things valued in society and just as a whole, so many times there's outreach for me in terms of like speaking engagements or podcasts. And what they want to know about is how I do personal branding so well. And I get so angry by that because on one hand, I do think I've gotten good at telling my story, whether that's through podcasting or LinkedIn or other kind of channels. I also think the word branding and personal branding, especially for a woman, can be a dirty word like, oh, you're promoting yourself or you're able to say I achieved this result or worked at this company or whatever it may be. So I think there's notion around the right narrative and the narrative that's out there and helps you get ahead, but also doesn't offend anyone is also a tight, tight rope to walk. I would love to go to a speaking engagement with you on, on any topic. Thank you. The people requesting (laughs) you are very lucky. It does feel like this kind of this endless crushing pressure in 2023, where if you don't have a brand and you don't have a very narrowly defined niche, Mm -hmm. do you even exist? Sure. And it seems like this is happening across more and more industries. Like, even with a doctor. Like, doctors have niches now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Because back to what I was saying, it's like, okay, if you have a niche and you know your worth in that niche, like, there's, like, people who are, like, AI people now or blockchain people, then they're like, oh, you're gimmicky because you're claiming a title you didn't earn. But then if you don't have a niche, like you said, then you're not really desired in the marketplace. There's a lot of challenges of being a freelancer, Mm. but one of the really good things is being able to do just a wide variety of different projects and kind of reject that type of thinking of like, okay, I only write about child welfare or I only write about the Ivy League. Like, um, yeah. And so that has been, that has been fun, even though I think I would make more money if I were willing to be like, I'm just going to do the same story again and again. Totally, totally. And on, on the conversation around narratives, you've spoken about the resilience narratives that are so prevalent in society and can actually really be toxic because the way I understand it is that they imply that when somebody goes through a traumatic experience or event such as the harassment that you experienced, their story needs to end in like this grand finale, which is, and then I succeeded and lived happily ever after. And of course, I see that to be very toxic. Tell me more about how you think about it and specifically how you think we as women can take control of our narratives. This idea of resilience is so baked into American culture. It goes really far back into some of the origin stories of our country. You think about the Horatio Alger novels featuring these poor boys who lived on the street and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Even those books, which I loved by Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie, it we get these messages of like, we have to be totally self-sufficient and when bad things happen, be made stronger by them. And that it's not just enough to survive. We have to take everything that happens to us and make it be for the better. I experienced this so many times throughout my life. When I was a kid in a family going through a really messy divorce and then my parents' mental illness, I just got these messages about like, you know, there's no problem if you act like you're okay. And then I got that message again big time when I was at Google and I was reporting someone for harassment. 
where it was like, as soon as the investigation is over, like everything has to go back to normal. And if you can't pretend that nothing happened, then you can't work here anymore. It felt like really a precondition of like being able to stay on my team, stay in my job, and ended up really pushing me out. I think in 2023, there's growing backlash to this idea of resilience. Hmm. It was one of the big things during the pandemic. And all of these workers, like healthcare workers, office workers, moms especially, were told like, okay, just be stronger, just bear it. And resilience was kind of the only option. And now I think people are really souring to this idea. To me, the most important thing is this recognition that things happen to us in our lives and we're affected by them in good ways and bad ways, but that that is okay and that's normal and that it should not be the expectation of an employee or a mother or a teenager to overcome in this magical way that's just not really realistic. Totally. And, you know, if somebody makes choices to, let's say, in your situation to say, I'm going to stay at this company, um, I think the expectation for them to pretend that it's okay, that's the really challenging part. Because ultimately, if you are able to go through something and say, I'm not okay, but I'm going to stay because I need to have a salary and a job, I think at least I would feel so much better that I was at least able to make my point and live authentically. But it's like you're expected to go through traumatic stuff and then live inauthentically about it, which is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah, and in my situation, you know, I reported it, HR corroborated my claims, and then I was expected to remain completely silent, to not talk to anyone on the team. I was sitting next to my harasser for a while. I did not know how long that was going to last and they wouldn't even move my desk. And so it was like this enormous burden of silence that in order to keep the team happy, it all fell on me. And I feared that like, if I did speak up, that it would be considered retaliation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. against my harasser and I would be punished. And I think that this is something that's just so baked into the HR process and into these systems where, like, in many ways, you know, I I had a good outcome, right? How many people can say, like, oh, HR was able to corroborate? Yeah, they supported you, at least. In, yeah, and for some definition of support. Sure, sure. But, like, these, but these systems are, like, fundamentally broken mm-hmm. where, like, I, I didn't get what I needed out of that process. My harasser did not get what he needed out of it. Um, and so I think it's important to to just rethink, rethink those processes from the point of view of like, you know, what is the impact of this on an employee, on a team? And, you know, there's some people who are incorporating more like, you know, restorative justice models into, into harassment and stuff like that, you know, and it's not right for every situation, but I know for me, just being able to have that conversation of like, Hey, here's how your behavior impacted me. Yeah. That would have gone such a long way in terms of just like acknowledging the damage and being able to like be open about it in a way that I couldn't be. Totally. And that's where I really think that 
the work you do today is innovation. And, you know, some, some people who are listening to this may be like, wait, but Emmy is not chief innovation officer at XYZ company. But I think that to your point, step one is to have these conversations and understand that even again, you didn't receive the support that you needed, but even if you were to have received it, there probably would have been 15 more cracks in the system, which would have inherently worked against you. And they, in reality, very much did. And so for us to change the companies, how workplace design is done, anything from HR and other organizational structures, I think it's critical that we continue amplifying and sharing your story. So I really appreciate you just to say for coming on here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it's so important to shine a light on the things that are going wrong. And for all of the issues that journalism is having as an, as an industry and publishing is having, there's still nobody else in society who's tasked with that job of like speaking the truth about what's happening Mm -hmm. in a way that can hopefully apply pressure to some of these companies to change. And we've of course touched on this new part of your career, which is really being in journalism as your industry, whether that's writing your own book or continuing to write op-ed pieces coming from the background of technology and just generally as an innovator. How are you thinking about opportunities for innovation in journalism now that you've gotten to work in it for a little bit? Absolutely. I think that the industry is moving towards this idea of like experts in various fields where you have people who are coming in with backgrounds in a certain profession and using that as their platform to write from. Where it used to be that objectivity was considered like the gold standard. And I think there's certainly like a big place for that. But you see people like Lori Gottlieb, who's a therapist, who's writing, Atul Gawande, who's a brilliant physician. And I think that that is exciting to be hearing from people from all these different professions. So I'm grateful to be able to be in that space and pulling in this experience in tech and also the experience of my earlier life, like growing up working class and being in the foster care system and finding those stories that an outsider might not experience. And there's certainly a big movement towards platforms like Substack. Like in the last two weeks, I feel like I've seen 200 writers I know start Substacks. Mm, I have one. Don't hate me. (laughs) You have one? No, I mean, I I love it. I just wish I had, I wish I had invested in mine sooner. Mm -hmm. But I'm I'm curious to see if there's going to be just a big shift like away from social media towards like these slower, older mediums, you know, it's like either very short TikToks or it's like words on the page, which is kind of cool and old school. Totally. It's a weird balance because on one hand, you know, when there was just a few sub stacks I followed, it felt like such a delightful treat in my inbox. And now it's almost like overwhelming when you have 10 sub stacks a day come into your inbox. And then I'm like, no, 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 back to TikTok I go. So I think the industry is definitely still finding its spectrum is the way that I see it. Yeah. And unfortunately, some of it feels like a pyramid scheme sometimes, where the path to financial sustainability is often teaching. Mm. And, you know, you're you're teaching knowing 
that there's relatively few publication opportunities. Right. But it's also such an innate human urge to tell your story. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes beyond the desire to be published or to sell a book or to make a living. And I think that's worth paying for. I completely agree. So yeah, no qualms with that. So before I do let you go, I'd love to ask you the one question we ask all of our innovators, and that is, where do you see yourself and or your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Yes. One month from now, I see myself working on a huge new project I'm really excited about that really bridges the engineering culture that I came from with journalistic reporting and digging into power structures that need to be interrogated in a year. I hope that I will have a much bigger audience on my Substack or these more personal connections with Mm -hmm. individual readers that I think are going to drive the industry. Um, So for the 10 year part, I think with the rise of AI and AI-generated content, that people will start to crave material that is more and more human. And so ChatGPT can easily come up with facts and paragraphs. They might not be true, but it is not very stylish. And I think it'll probably get better in that way. But in the same way that Instagram and TikTok has made the young people love like analog photography... I think that there will be a push towards style, individual personality shining through the writing, and really excited to to see that happen. Yes, bring back human voices. Love to see it. Thank you so much for coming on today, and I'm excited for you to keep on sharing your story as well as all of the new stories you'll have to share in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Zoya. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakal. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.